here in Washington, D.C., what's most important is the impact that we have on the lives of people in the communities beyond the monuments. And those are diverse communities, right? People who have different life chances and trajectories than many of our students and certainly of our faculty. What I want to do is have an impact on their lives as well. And by bringing our students along as part of that mission, I think what we're doing is we're creating force multipliers because they're going to go out and impact their communities where they are. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, a tech-enabled end-to-end provider of talent management systems to law firms and corporate legal departments. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we take a look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal profession. Occasionally, We'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. We're honored to kick off our first episode of 2022 with today's guest, Roger Fairfax Jr., Dean of American University, Washington College of Law. Not only is this our first podcast episode of 2022, but we are also celebrating Black History Month. Today's conversation will explore how law schools and the legal profession can improve in increasing diversity and inclusion at all levels of the process. Just a word about my longtime friend, Dean Roger Fairfax, Dean of American University, Washington College of Law, as a prominent legal scholar, educator, nationally known expert on criminal justice. He previously served as the Patricia Roberts Harris Research Professor and founding director of the Criminal Law and Policy Initiative, as well as the Jeffrey and Martha Cohn Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at George Washington University Law School. Prior to his career in academia, he practiced law with the firm of O'Melveny and Myers in Washington, D.C., and served as a federal prosecutor through the Attorney General's Honors Program in the Public Integrity Section of the Criminal Division of the United States Department of Justice. And prior to that, Dean Fairfax was a Sherman and Sterling LDF scholar, which is how we first met more years ago than either of us really want to admit. Uh, when uh, when I remember him very clearly sitting in my office and us getting to be uh, friendly. Uh, it's been a long-standing relationship and um, one that, that we all value. Dean Fairfax, we want to thank you for joining today's episode, and we just want to jump right in. So the first question is a very general one, but we hope uh, focused on today's legal environment. You know, it's fast-moving, it's changing, and what challenges do you see as a dean of a, of a prominent law school in the city of Washington that faces law schools and the legal profession today? What are, you, what are the things that keep you up in, at night? Right. Well, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It is a, a true honor to, to be on this podcast and to uh, be in conversation with, with you, Jonathan and, and Brian. Um, and uh, I am looking forward uh, to our discussion. And, and you know, you, you asked... Uh, other question that you know every law school dean is grappling with, right? Um, given all of the challenges confronting us uh, right now 
in 2022? I mean, how, how do you prioritize among them? And, and certainly, you know, top of the list is, is obviously the, the global pandemic and, and all of the societal issues that uh, have come about as a result of this um, uh, uh, situation, you know, whether on the, on the health uh, front, the economy, um, et cetera. And obviously the human suffering associated um, with the pandemic is gonna be front of mind for anyone, but, but in terms of legal education and speaking as a new dean who has been in the role for just over seven months now, you know, as any new dean, you know, I, I spent um, uh, my uh, uh, first months learning the place and uh, spent a lot of time reacting and sort of putting out fires and laying the foundation for the implementation of, of my leadership vision for the institution. And, you know, that's about budgets and the academic program and admissions. And as always, and primarily, it's about students. Um, and you're looking at issues around distance learning, remote learning, pedagogy, equity issues that, that come out of that conversation. And then, of course, the job market and, and your law school's mission and, uh, and impact. Um, but, but I think top of the list uh, in uh, that set of issues uh, for me is uh, about uh, my, my people at the law school, you know, uh, students staff and faculty. And we often talk about this pandemic in institutional terms, and that makes sense, right? We're institutional leaders, but you know, as we all know, the impact of this pandemic is so personal, right? We have students and staff and faculty who have uh, dealt with illness. Um, they may have children in schools that are closed uh, periodically. They may have caretaking responsibility for partners or elders. There's tremendous fear in many communities. Um, uh, around uh, the consequences of, uh, of catching COVID. Are there people grappling with financial um, security issues and food security and housing security issues? So these are you know, all things that um, you know, I think a law school leader um, must take into account when prioritizing um, uh, in, in 2022. Um, and closely related to all of that are the mental health and wellness challenges associated with this. I mean, many um, uh, people who are suffering the effects of isolation, uh, when they're not engaging with, uh, with their colleagues and peers in the way they had become accustomed to and, and um, you know, sort of dealing with that, dealing with the stress and the pressure of having to, to do more with less in many law schools, right? And, and, um, uh, and so, you know, I've responded to that. I've, you know, established a, a wellness committee to look at ways in which we can develop uh, initiatives to support um, a student and, and staff and faculty health and wellness. You know, I think the tone at the top is very important as well. I, I try to, to walk the hallways uh, both uh, in person and virtually um, so that I can um, listen to people and hear their concerns and engage with them. And as you mentioned, uh, Jonathan, you know, I'm privileged to lead a prominent law school here in D.C., which is my hometown. And um, uh, as bad as this uh, pandemic has been for law schools and, um, you know, other entities within the profession from an institutional standpoint, um, there are people suffering in our surrounding communities, right? The, the pandemic's impact on the District of Columbia, for instance, has just been tremendous. And it impacts our ability as a law school to assist, right? Uh, our clinics won't have as much capacity because we can't have 
um, the same sort of face-to-face -face interaction at the same level that we uh, uh, used to have, right? It's, it's more difficult to open up your campus um, and to do the important community relations and pipeline work that I think law schools should be doing. Um, and within our own community as a law school, right, there are people, you know, who um, are suffering disproportionately, right? I mean, the, the folks who do such a, a great job maintaining our facilities and keeping um, everything healthy and safe and clean, they don't have the option of, of working remotely, right? They're getting on the metro every day and on the bus and coming in and um, uh, have concerns about the impact that will have on their family. And so all of these um, uh, sorts of issues, um, I think, weigh heavily on the minds of, of people in a position uh, like mine um, leading a law school. Um, but more um, uh, perhaps to the point with regard to uh, uh, looking at it through the lens of a legal education, you know, we're concerned about whether we're providing a legal education for the future and not for the past, right? And, um, you know, so that's important, right? We have to be looking at pedagogical approaches and innovations, right? We have to look at technology around learning and instruction and to make sure uh, that we are on the cutting edge, right? And, and, and not catching up. Um, I'm focused on access to legal education, right? Affordability. Of, um, uh, of legal education, pipeline issues, and I'm happy to talk more about any of these. Jobs, right? We, we are entrusted um, with the, the tremendous responsibility by um, uh, these students who are making significant sacrifices to, to come to our law schools. And we are entrusted with the responsibility of doing everything in our power to make sure when they graduate that they can make a good living and they can follow their passions and they can um, advance justice. And, and of course, um, you know, I am laser focused on diversity equity uh, and, and inclusion. And, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap on this just by saying we also as law school leaders have to do our part to continue to improve our profession. Right. And we have to make sure we're doing our part to help the profession play its role in upholding the, the, the rule of law and uh, the advancement of justice. And that is not only about training and preparing our students to do that when they graduate, but it's also actively and proactively partnering with the bar and with the judiciary and the profession more generally to make sure we're doing everything um, uh, we can to uh, ensure that our profession lives up to its promise. You touched on a lot of things that uh, I know we're going to follow up on, so I, I won't dive into those now because uh, I know Brian has questions he'd like to ask that touch on some of the very points you just made. But if I could just ask you to hone in for one minute on where you started, which is the pandemic, and ask you to put, you know, look into the crystal ball, what do you think will happen to the delivery of legal education that will stick long term? as a result of the good and the bad that came out of the pandemic. Right, yes, and, and that is, is something that, uh, you know, we law school deans and law school faculty members and, and, and staff members grapple with um, day in and day out, right? I mean, obviously, you know, in, in March of, of 2020, we all had to pivot very quickly. And, you know, for many, it was embracing for the first time remote instruction, right? There um, had been in, in many corners of legal academia, a lot of resistance to remote instruction and distance uh, learning, right? Um, and uh, I think uh, because of the uh, the emergency 
that was created um, uh, during the onset of the uh, pandemic in um, communities around the country. Benny had to embrace that modality pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I think it was it was pretty rocky at first. Um, I think most people would admit. But, you know, over the summer of 2020 and, and with investment of resources and time and training, um, you started to see many gain a facility with the basics of, of remote instruction. And while I am convinced that, um, uh, you know, face-to-face instruction and interaction um, are, are still the, the platinum standard of, of many, you know, pedagogical approaches, uh, I do think that uh, the uh, remote modality is going to be here to stay in many ways um, in uh, legal uh, education. And that's that's not only sort of organic, you know, coming from uh, the experience of, of law schools, but it's, it's uh, you know, through observation of what's happening uh, out in practice, right, with, um, you know, many legal employers, many, you know, large law firms, small law firms, discovering that not only uh, uh, can lawyers be productive uh, in a remote environment. In some instances, they're even more productive, all right? They're not commuting and then they're able to have a better work-life balance. Now, again, there, there are trade-offs. And um, I think that, you know, uh, leaders uh, throughout the practice community are cautioned to think carefully about what the future will look like. But I, I think what, what uh, nobody can dispute is that the future will be impacted by our experience here, right? I think we are forever changed as a profession. Um, uh, as a result of our experience in this pandemic. And hopefully we can uh, extract the good um, uh, that uh, comes from this experience and apply it in a way um, that makes us a a better, stronger profession going forward. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Roger. Lots of of great information there uh, for for the audience. I think I'm going to try to build on what you and John were just talking about um, and probably have a couple of of uh, components to this question. So I think I'll ask you the whole thing and then I'll I'll just ask you again one at a time so we can you know, so we can break up. I I don't want uh, the the audience to lose any of the wisdom that you're that you're laying out here. you talked about at the end of your first answer to John being viscerally focused on the diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all that that meant, whether um, it was pipeline and the job market, and for both you know faculty, um, you know students, uh, and and the other folks that uh, that work for you. But you also talked about something that we talk about a lot here at Legal Innovators, and that's wellness and your wellness uh, initiative, and when we talk about the diversity pipeline kind of going into uh, going out into the real world, there's a question of job readiness across the board. And I wonder how, you know, that gets complicated by this distance learning. So let, let me, let me break this uh, apart and say, you've got a lot of challenges and, you know, if, if somebody just listened to that first uh, answer that you gave, um, you could be working all day and all night. How do you, how do you balance this? Right. And, and I don't know if as a uh, Dean of color, a black Dean, um, people look at you for any more weight on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, So the first question is just that, how do you think about that? Do you feel a greater uh, weight on, on you? Um, and how do you balance that with all of the objectives and things that you have to get accomplished? 
Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, as a, a law school dean, you know, with my background, you know, being, you know, African-American, um, a man who um, has um, uh, experienced uh, certain things and who has come up through the profession. Right. I mean, I, I you know, went to law school just like my students and um, uh, was, a, was a junior lawyer and, um, uh, you know, worked my way. Um, uh, to this position. And so I have um, uh, a great deal of experience to draw um, uh, on as I think about how we shape our institution, but also um, how um, I uh, help to guide our, uh, our students. And, and I, I recognize that, you know, they look at me um, and I think uh, everyone in the institution, you know, looks um, uh, to uh, leadership and, and, and why. And that's why I believe tone at the top is so uh, important. And uh, I, I try to make sure I, uh, in my, my role as a, as a law school dean, I signal um, uh, the, uh, the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, both in terms of my management decisions, making sure uh, that our DEI professionals within uh, the law school um, are valued and, um, and have access to, to, to me and um, a, a direct line so that I'm having uh, the uh, critical conversations necessary to help shape uh, the mission around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a lot of direct engagement with our affinity groups on campus and uh, making sure that I am a resource for them. In fact, uh, uh, Jonathan and I had a conversation recently uh, working with our Jewish Law Students Association on some initiatives and, um, and other affinity groups. And uh, I think that that's critically important as well. Um, and then I think beyond the law school in the community, I, I try to lead by example. Um, I often say, you know, here in Washington, D.C., that what's most important is the impact that we have on the lives of, of people in the communities beyond the monuments. Right. And those are diverse communities. Right. Uh, 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 you know, populated by many people who have different life ch chances and trajectories than many of our students and certainly of our faculty. And um, what I want to do is have an impact on their lives as well. And by bringing our students uh, along um, as part of that mission, I think what we're doing is we're creating force multipliers because they're going to go out um, when they graduate. And I think they're going to have the same orientation um, impact and impact community. their communities where they are. Yeah. Um, thank you. Let me just hit you with two quick follow up. Um, you know, turn it before we turn it back uh, over to John to ask another question. Let's stay with the pipeline for a second. And I'm wondering, are there innovative things that you uh, as a dean are doing or that you've seen out in the community that work? Um, and so two pipeline points the pipeline of diverse students that's coming into law school. Um, so we can, so we can get that, that bigger. Um, and then having a workforce kind of including those diverse professionals that's ready to go out into the community and work. So that, that's the concept of the job readiness. Absolutely. I, and I, I am a, a, a big believer in pipeline and also the duty of, of law schools and to lawyers more generally to the profession. Um, to invest in that pipeline. And I, I think that pipeline goes back to, to K-12 um, education, right? Um, we have a duty to, to go out and engage um, uh, with young people, right? You never know uh, when you're going to spark the mind that is going to revolutionize the law one day, right? And so uh, we have a, a unique 
opportunity and responsibility to do that. So at, at American University Washington College of Law, we have a wonderful program um, called the, the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project. And uh, we work with DC public schools primarily in teaching fundamentals of American law and then um, ultimately having a, uh, a moot court mock trial event um, on campus uh, for our schools. Uh, that we work with. Um, I'm actually expanding our outreach beyond that and working with our talented staff at WCL so that we can touch even more students throughout uh, the greater DC area, because again, that is so um, uh, critical. And then I think, you know, your, your point, uh, Brian, about uh, job readiness is, is so um, uh, important. I uh, have over the years uh, been involved with and have supported various pipeline programs that seek to do just that. And you know, some of them are are, are pretty well known, like SEO, you know, sponsors for right. educational right. opportunity. Right. Uh, inroads. I was an inroads intern myself. And, me, me too. Um, no, okay, bro. So, so <laughs> and you may day, remember right? back in the day, and, and you might remember from inroads. I remember our orientation <laughs> session because I yeah. was the person they called up front to show what not to wear. To work, I had a short sleeve <laughs> shirt on. I, I had a, a, a knit like bolo tie, and and they said, oh, "Listen, boy. that that's not that's not appropriate." And, and so, but I would not have known, but for that, right? And do, so, do you have any pictures from back then that we could I, share I, with I, the audience? I, I, I do. I think they're in a vault somewhere, though. So, okay. I have did to, you have a pocket um, protector? Not a pocket, but, but the bolo tie was actually ahead of my time. That was, you know, eighties. It was pretty, pretty. But but yes, but not not appropriate for the the business workplace and right, right. Um, and so and I think opportunities like that exposure and, and those programs are so important and um, and I think even at the law school level early exposure you know in the first year you know to opportunities and um, you know opportunities outside the traditional summer programs um, is so critically. Um, it important as uh, as well, and so yes, all of that is uh, intertwined and and critical to our overall success in this area. Yeah, and it, maybe you know thirty seconds to to a minute. I, I don't want to you know sort of uh, dominate the um, you know the conversation too much, but um, John and I and and you know the rest of our team here at Legal Innovators, we talk a lot about mental health. Um, we've added some performance coaching. We actually have. You know John's daughter coming to uh, to join us as a mental health professional to um, make sure that people have the resources and things that they need and that that we're being cognizant, especially in a remote environment, right? Where um, you have people that may not be getting that in person um, mentoring. So just wondering if you want to say a word or two about you know your what your program, and then when you look at it, we we wrote uh, an article on on mental health a couple months back that that was in the American Lawyer. I wonder, do you see a particular uh, impact on diverse students uh, as as mental health goes with this uh, pandemic, or, or are you just seeing it kind of across the board? Yeah, well, no. Again, I, you know, I think mental health and wellness are are, are are so important, and and it is something you know we're seeing uh, across the board, right? That again, the isolation, um, the uncertainty, right? I mean, things you know, when, when we were in law school, things that we pretty much took for granted, right? you did X and you did Y, then Z was, was a possibility. And, um, you know, for current students, you know, they don't know, right? Things are being delayed, postponed, um, you know, even the bar exam, right? And there's a question, is it going to be in person? Is it going to be remote? Will I be able to get a seat? So we took those things for granted, right? And uh, you can imagine all of the stressors 
um, that are uh, brought to bear upon law students in any situation, and you add um, uh, to them everything that has come out of um, the challenges we're facing now, you, you can understand why mental health and wellness uh, need uh, uh, to be a priority. And we, um, uh, you know, through our wellness committee have done a lot, um, you know, our, our Office of Student Affairs has also done a lot in this um, uh, area. Our SBA has been uh, quite proactive in this area. And uh, uh, for instance, there was a wellness week um, back in the fall where, you know, every day there were various offerings and we're um, uh, uh, looking to repeat that um, in the spring to connect students with resources. Um, and so all of these things are so important. And I'm actually seeing this in practice, right? When I look at law firms, for instance, um, so many of them have mindfulness programs and, and, and wellness um, resources. And sometimes the challenge can be destigmatizing um, uh, lawyers and, and business support staff, their access um, uh, of these resources, right? To, to um, encourage people to take advantage of them, to show that firm leadership um, that they actually want you to do this, right? Because they think that it will um, support you um, uh, in your work at the firm. And so I, I think, you know, in all um, uh, corners of the profession, we're, we're grappling with these issues and these challenges. And I think by working together, uh, we'll be able to move the needle on this important issue. So Dean Fairfax, I just want to pick up on uh, some of what you were just discussing with Brian about uh, uh, pipeline and, and the challenges, the DE&I challenges that the legal profession faces. I think we can stipulate. I don't think anyone can really argue with the proposition that the legal profession still has a long way to go to achieve uh, the objectives of DE&I that I think it aspires to. Um, that's at the recruiting level, at the retention level, in once, once in the job force, and then in the promotion level, up to the highest, uh, highest rungs of uh, partnership or whatever other structure exists within, within the place that they work. And, of course, pipeline, which you talked about. There are currently an increasing number of black deans at prominent law schools across the country, a very positive development. Does that in any way, in your view, provide momentum uh, to change the landscape in the legal profession from where it's been stagnant for so long? And I don't mean to suggest by asking that question that the burden falls only on those deans. The burden must be shared, of course, across the board. But I am wondering whether it does provide some momentum it allows whether it allows a platform for more deans to start talking about some of the issues that that have been in the background and not dealt with. What do you think? Right. Well, well, John, you know, so at my last count, I mean, there were, uh, you know, well over 50 sitting deans who, who are, are black. And I think more than 75 percent of, of those deans are, are women. And I, I do think that's an extraordinary development and, and one worth. Uh, recognizing. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also important to to acknowledge that it's also the case that it has never been more difficult to be a law school dean, right, than, than it has over the past, you know, dozen or so years. Um, so the question is how we support this relatively new cohort of Black deans in uh, moving the needle on um, uh, those uh, issues that you name. And, you know, there certainly are support networks within our own uh, community. I've had the great privilege to, to have a number of mentors um, from among this cohort who have given me 
helpful guidance along the way. Um, uh, there's professional development programming sort of tailored to the unique challenges faced by uh, deans of color. And I think presidents and provosts um, can support these deans and to help them develop into provosts and presidents themselves so that they can amplify the important work uh, that they're doing. And I, and I found that, you know, this cohort of, of Black deans and, and, and allies, including a number of, of non-Black current deans and several uh, of former deans around the country, folks like Kelly Testi at, at LSAC and Judy Arena at WALS and then Martha Minow, who has uh, been um, all of whom have been personally um, supportive of, of me. Um, you know, I think this cohort has been engaged in important conversations around anti-racist curricula, diversity and faculty hiring, um, uh, recruitment and retention, and, and academic success of diverse students, and how law schools can serve as a platform for social justice on any number of, uh, of fronts. And I and I think the increased activity here is a direct result of the in increase of the number of Black deans over the past decade and a half. And I am confident um, that working together, um, uh, we are going to be able to, to move the needle on um, uh, these important issues. Can I ask one follow-up question before, before um, the next one, which is, do you think that there is a need for, and even a possibility of, having a closer working relationship on these issues between the legal profession, the, the employers, and the law schools. Uh, obviously, there's uh, a symbiotic relationship in the recruiting process, but I wonder whether there's more that can be done throughout the academic career of a student with the assistance of, uh, of law firms. Uh, and then once people get into the firm, some continuing engagement on the part of the law, law schools for people who have left them and gone into the legal profession so that there's a little more of a continuum. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I mean, I my, myself have done a great deal of work, um, you know, as you know, with uh, with law firms, you know, from my perch in academia, helping uh, them think about ways to continue the legal education. Right. Uh, the junior lawyers, they recruit, you know, brimming with talent um, and, you know, harnessing that talent and developing uh, that talent in uh, ways that are best suited to uh, the, uh, the the lawyers they recruit, and looking at things like how do you design workflow processes so that you have optimal programs for ensuring uh, equitable uh, access to work and uh, access to quality work, the type of work that will help a um, uh, a junior lawyer develop at the uh, at the firm, right? Looking at feedback. Right. And um, making sure you look at critical distinctions like the distinction between developmental feedback and evaluative feedback. And how do you deploy that feedback in a way that, again, helps to develop uh, these uh, uh, these junior lawyers and, um, uh, and, uh, and help the firm to retain them um, and to promote um, uh, them uh, ultimately. And that's critically important with diverse lawyers. Right. For for all the reasons, um, you know, we can talk about. So I so I from that side have done a lot of work. And then certainly as a law school dean, I see it as my responsibility to go out um, to talk to hiring attorneys, to talk to professional development managers in these uh, law firms and to discuss what it is we in law schools can do better 
to prepare our uh, students for practice readiness upon graduation, right? Um, you know, how might we overhaul our legal research and writing uh, programs? How might we integrate problem solving into um, our core curriculum? How can we have the curricular offerings that have the greatest amount of relevance for the modern practice of law? So these are all things that I do as a matter of course, and I think um, I have an obligation to do it, um, and it makes sense. Um, as the leader of a law school um, to work um, closely uh, with legal employers um, on these issues. Yeah. Um, thank, thanks for that, Roger. Um, we maybe move to a point where, you know, we, we focus a lot and I know you've uh, even helped us, you know, sort of think through this, right. And you, you lead a, a law school that's um, not in the T14, as they call it, right? But uh, turns out a lot of very good lawyers. You're, you're smiling because you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? Which is, and and we know this, right? It's it's kind of like um, people take it for granted, but we still kind of stick to our guns, <laughs> and we've got to be at the top uh, in T14 for our audiences, top 14 law schools or or top 25, uh, where we know um, great. Lawyers come from from all law schools, and I guess maybe as an intro uh, for anybody who who hasn't uh, listened to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, um, he was talking about a story. Uh, um, the late Justice Scalia, and, and God rest his soul, there was a speech he was giving at American. So, uh, and this was obviously um, you know prior to your to your tenure, um, but a young woman uh, raises her hand and she asked uh, the late Justice Scalia. Hey, how can I become a Supreme Court clerk, right? Um, and you might imagine, you know, in his his uh, his style, he just says, uh, you know, pretty simply, you can't. Um, and they ask a follow up. Well, why why is that? And and he says, well, I just don't have time to take chances, so I go to Harvard and Yale. And that's that's it. There was a another savvy person, maybe a friend of hers in the audience, that says, okay, well, who was your best clerk ever? Uh, and and where did that person go to law school? Um, and he had to think about it for a second. And that person is um, maybe maybe John or you will probably know this. I I guess if I'm going to tell the story, I should have the person's name. But he's now the Chief Justice of the Sixth Circuit, and he went to Ohio State. And you know, Justice Scalia was like, "Oh, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, there are there actually are uh, people that come from uh, these great schools." So. That really, and you know, just just trying to keep it keep it light. But well, how do you think about that? And and what are some of the conversations you have on looking broadly? And obviously, as the the leader of a school that turns out really good lawyers. And one thing that John and I uh, wrestle with, though, I wonder if you could share with the audience is how do you say we're being you know more inclusive, right? And just across the board, that helps. That will help with diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, but having people uh, that are satisfied that the quality standard will be made. Yeah, well, no, thanks so much for for this uh, uh, question, and I I won't get into to rankings. I've I have a lot of thoughts about uh, <laughs> rankings. I, could, I couldn't get you in that trap. Huh? Yeah, Sorry about yeah, that. yeah. I, I will say, you know, for you know, for instance, you know, the American University Washington College of Law has six programs ranked in the top fifteen, but I, I think I actually want to sort of move away from having employers focus on rankings and encourage them to get to know the schools, right? Um, I think that they should look beyond rankings to determine whether there are talented students who could thrive at um, uh, their firms, for instance, and and can um, uh, move the needle. And so, you know, in a word, you know, kick the tires yourself. Don't rely on, on consumer reports to see if, if you like the car. You want to go out and test drive it, right? And 
Um, and, and what does that entail? That means, you know, learn about the curriculum, learn about the quality of instruction and the faculty, um, you know, learn about the pedagogical approaches being employed and how the students are being prepared for the modern practice of law. And listen, I think it's incumbent, as I said before, upon law school deans to be proactive about that, which is why I go out and I go out in my roadshow and I visit with potential employers. And when I do, I talk about these key performance indicators as if I were raising money from angel investors, right? I want them to understand um, why the American University Washington College of Law is special, why our students are special, and um, uh, why they should take a real look um, at them and consider them uh, for uh, employment. So I'll share with them, you know, the richness and excellence of our program of legal education. Um, and, and, and I seek to persuade them that hiring one of my students is not just a safe bet, it's a sure bet. And also, you know, I, uh, you know, I would say, you know, look within your own institutions, right? And I'm, I'm talking to legal employers here. You know, even at the most selective and exclusive uh, white shoe law firms, I mean, there typically are a good number of partners, um, you know, very successful partners who did not attend a top-ranked law school. And so I think we both need to lean on them to help make the case for recruiting more broadly and recruiting at their alma mater, um, et cetera, and also encourage them not to pull up the ladder, but to reach back and, and provide opportunities um, to those from other uh, backgrounds. So I really do think it's a, it's a two-way um, uh, street. There is so much talent um, uh, out there, you know, all, all we have to do is, is look for it and know where to look to uh, derive the benefit uh, from it. Uh, we're we're going to, uh, John, it looks like you had one more, no, no, one no, more question. No, before. I was going to uh, say that uh, when Roger and I spoke, I, I gave him a heads up of that I doubted you would forget that we would do the uh, pet peeve <laughs> section. I was hoping, but doubted you would. No, and, I, I wrote, I wrote it over in the in the cover page even before my questions. Yeah, not yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you know. So, so, so he will not have an excuse that he wasn't forewarned. He wasn't ready. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's let. I, I like the uh, the change in intro to the pet peeve section. <laughs> you can see that John John has really grown to love this section. <laughs> uh, read that is he indulges me and and uh and and you know they just get out of the way and let, let me do it but we'll uh why, why don't we why don't we dive in roger we 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 do a pet peeve uh section on the shows and you know we've had some pretty good ones so um love to uh love to hear what you've thought up and this can be anything uh legal in life uh it's just a, a light-hearted way to you know to uh to sign off the episode for the audience um so you're the guest and um we'll let you go first this is going to sound strange. It has nothing to do with, with law necessarily. Um, it has to do with traffic. <laughs> and this is all, I mean, this, I didn't have to think about it. I mean, this, this is, you know, I think the, the, the pet peeve um, of pet peeves for me. And that is uh, when you're driving um, and, and let's say you're in the middle lane or, or in the left lane and then you're two lanes, three lanes, whatever. Um, and someone's making a right turn when they don't get into the right lane to make the right turn, but they slow down in the <laughs> middle lane and proceed to make a right turn from the middle lane, just slowing all traffic behind them um, and, uh, and making the right turn, cutting across the right lane in, in the process. I don't know why that gets under my skin, but it does. And, um, and I, I know my wife and my children, anyone who's been in the car with me um, uh, have heard 
um, uh, my reaction today. And I could be in, in an Uber or, or in a Lyft. I don't have to be driving. I just have to experience it happening, um, and it gets under my skin. So that that is my pet peeve. <laughs> Right. Uh, Thank you. I guess we could probably all agree to that one. Uh, In addition to being a pet peeve, it sounds dangerous, right? (laughs) Um, uh, Why don't we go to John? Uh, Well, my pet peeve, you won't be surprised to know, of course, again, focuses on technology. TV? Uh, Technology. Technology. Because because there's so much. It's actually too easy a topic, uh, but but it's such low-hanging fruit. Why is it that every USB cord bends the opposite way to the way you're supposed to plug it in? So that it it never (laughs) wants to go. It wants to go upside down and you have to force it in the opposite way. Now, why when they invent the USB cord, why when they manufacture it, design it, can't they make it so that it actually curls in the right direction? I don't know. I don't understand it, but it drives me nuts. Uh, I, 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 I share that. Um, and and uh, I know we're going to come back to uh, the the announcement by Justice Brower and talk about um, the replacement for SCOTUS. Um, my thought is uh, I hope we can come you know, more in a nonpartisan way uh, and try to look at the Supreme Court <laughs> in the function that they're supposed to be in and not just, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, balls and strikes, I think, is, is uh, Justice Roberts said. Um, but we'll see uh, when it comes up. And I know John and I will have some thoughts for, for you all later. Um, I'm going to go with Rogers as my official pet peeve uh, in, in terms of driving. Um, and as John tells me, uh, having moved to the East Coast, I just have to learn how to drive in the snow, which clearly uh, I don't know. So uh, Roger, one of our fraternity brothers, was going to watch my dog while I'm out of town, <laughs> headed for a vacation and, you know, startup land. <laughs> uh, so the team was like, hey, we got you, go rest, whatever. And I'm all packed. And I got my stuff in there, got the dog in the back, going to take it over to, uh, to Thomas's house. And uh, it had snowed that night before, um, and my car was pointing up this little hill in my driveway, not a mountain, but a little hill. And so the tires are spinning, and I'm like, it's 4.30 in the morning, I don't want to miss this flight, right, because you're looking forward to this vacation. And just spinning and spinning and spinning, I was like, okay, this is great. So I'm snowed into the driveway, and I had to get out of the car, uh, figure out how I how I dig myself out. So if anybody wants to come and, and give me driving lessons for how to drive in the snow uh, and not not uh, not be trapped, I would uh, I would take those. So I guess the pet peeve is partly at uh, the DC snow, but I guess it's also directed at me since uh, I have, probably should figure out how to do this. I think as your business partner, it's incumbent on me to come. I I grew up in New. England and we, we learned those things. <laughs> I, I want you know you one the, tip: you don't keep spinning. No, exactly. I, I finally got out. If anybody was wondering, I did make it, um, and, and so um, I will take the uh, you know as, as stubborn as I could be. Sometimes I readily welcome the lessons. So. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I want to thank the we both want to thank Dean Roger Fairfax for joining us today, including sharing his pet peeve. Uh, And Brian and I. Good good sport. Thank all of you for listening to the law in black and white. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Guests like Dean Fairfax are uh, they enrich our program. And so uh, we're so thrilled that he joined us. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We're up to a lot, so you should follow us. We look forward to talking to you next time, and, and as always, stay safe in the interim.